But let's begin tonight now with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your salvation, and we we rejoice in the truths that you have given to us for our salvation in your church. We ask you to enlighten our minds and our hearts with the gift of your spirit, that we might better understand these truths of salvation and be able to explain them to those who ask us about them. And we pray, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title for tonight's talk is, I Fell Into a Burning Ring of Fire, The Catholic Doctrine of Podcasting. Now, when I, I had the title, and it was advertised as such, our chancellor, the diocesan chancellor, uh, who's basically the, the bishop's uh, right-hand man, asked me, isn't this basically, isn't it a better title for a talk on hell? Uh, but it's not. There's actually, hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll see why I, I used that Johnny Cash song title as, uh, as a title for this, this presentation. Uh, how many of you, in the last five years, how many of you have heard a homily that mentioned purgatory in the last five years? Oh. Ten years? Fifty? Ever? How many of you have ever? Yeah, I've never heard a homily that mentioned purgatory. Um, how many of you remember being taught about purgatory at one time or another? Most of you, thank goodness. Unfortunately, uh, purgatory is something that's not really well understood by a lot of Catholics today, and hence, um, we're giving, I'm doing a presentation on it tonight. In fact, uh, and I, the reason we're doing... This topic is because at September's Theology on Tap, somebody said it'd be great to have a Theology on Tap on Purgatory, and frankly, I'm surprised that we, I, I didn't do one in the past because it is definitely an issue that people have a lot of questions about. So hopefully tonight, uh, between the presentation and then the questions and answers at the end, we'll be able, I'll be able to at least give you a basic understanding and answer your questions about what the church teaches and why the church teaches what it does about the doctrine of Purgatory. When you think about what we teach as Catholics, what we believe as Catholics, there are a number of things that our Protestant brothers and sisters wonder about and often ask us questions about. There's sort of this kind of a standard litany of Protestant questions about Catholic doctrine that that sometimes are raised. Uh, Mary is a big one. The Pope is is a big one. Praying to saints in general is another major one. Purgatory is also in that litany. It's one of those things that we believe that most Protestants don't believe. Virtually all Protestants uh, don't believe. And so they often have questions for us about why we believe uh, in purgatory and what we base that belief on. Um, Usually, when we're asked about it, uh, Protestants will ask us, where's that in the Bible? You know, that's to me... Why do, you, why do Catholics believe in purgatory? And then the second question, well, where is that in the Bible? Uh, are oftentimes uh, the questions that, that, that come up about purgatory to us as Catholics. What I want to do tonight, again, is hopefully give you an explanation for why we believe what we believe about purgatory. But first I want to address that question, where is that in the Bible? Because we get that question not just about purgatory, but about virtually all of the things that we believe as Catholics that they don't. And it's a good question. I mean, we... Catholics and Protestants both believe that the Bible is uniquely inspired. 
Only the Bible is inspired. The Bible is God's word, which he has given to us as a gift. Uh, and we as Catholics agree with our Protestant brothers and sisters about the fact, that fact about Scripture. For Protestants, Scripture is also the only channel uh, of divine revelation. It's the only source for the teachings that God gave to us and that Christ gave to us as, as the second person of the Trinity. We as Catholics have scripture and tradition, uh, but they have scripture alone. And so really, it, when you remember that, it makes sense that Protestants are going to ask, uh, where's that in the Bible? At the same time, the question, where's that in the Bible, has a couple of faulty presumptions um, at the heart of it that I want to talk briefly about first. First of all, who said that everything we're supposed to believe is, is found in Scripture explicitly? The, in other words, the question sort of assumes that everything we believe as Christians is going to be found explicitly in the Bible. Uh, so it's, sometimes it's good just to ask. When somebody says, well, where's that in the Bible? Sometimes it's helpful just to ask them, well, why does it have to be in the Bible for us as Christians to believe it? Now, I'm not going to get into that whole discussion here. We can talk about it another time. But that's, that's a question... That's a question that needs to be addressed as well, I think. In fact, there are all sorts of beliefs that Catholics and Protestants believe, that, ho that we hold to, that aren't found explicitly in Scripture. In other words, there, there are doctrines that Catholics and Protestants, all Christians believe, that aren't spelled out crystal clear in the Bible. For instance, uh, the belief in the Trinity is, is a core Christian belief. Um, and, and there's definitely evidence for it in Scripture, but it's not spelled out explicitly. All, all Christians believe in the Nicene Creed, which we recite every Sunday, we proclaim every Sunday at Mass, but nowhere in the Bible do you find the language uh, one God, three persons, that we use in the Creed. That's, you don't find that in the, in the Bible. Uh, there's nothing, the, the explicit teaching on the Trinity that we as, as Christians, Catholic and Protestant, believe is it found in the Bible? It's not explicit. It's implicit, but it's not explicit. Another uh, rather timely issue, uh, the dignity of all human life, uh, and, and sort of the, the, the converse of that, the, uh, the evil of abortion isn't spelled out explicitly in the Bible, and yet many Christians, uh, besides Catholics, believe in that, even though it's not spelled out explicitly in Scripture. Okay, so there are all sorts of things that we as Catholics and Protestants believe uh, that aren't spelled out explicitly in the Bible. So the point here is when somebody says, where's that in the Bible? Our response is, well, there's a lot of things that we believe that aren't explicitly in Scripture. Purgatory is one of them, to bring this around. Purgatory, it's true. Somebody says, show me a verse that has purgatory in it. You're, there's no such verse that has the word purgatory in the Bible. Nonetheless... Hopefully we'll see tonight that the Bible does teach that there is a purgatory. It does tell us about purgatory and, and what it is and so on. And we will see that tonight. Now one of the things uh, that, we, that it's important to remember is but the Bible does tell us that there's more than just heaven and hell. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we, Catholics, only, Catholics are unique in believing that there's a third place, heaven, hell, and purgatory. But that's not the case. Scripture does refer to a, a third place, and I'm going to... Well, anybody know where? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Gehenna. Or Sheol, as well. Hades. There are, there are in, in the first letter of St. Peter, 
St. Peter refers to how after Jesus died, he descended to the dead, to the imprisoned spirits and preached the gospel to them. And, and, and the, the, the understanding there is that Jesus went to somewhere where those who had died were at, their souls were, but they weren't in hell. They were those who needed to be freed from prison, so to speak, so that they could go to heaven now that Jesus had died for our sins. Okay, we see this in sacred art, images of, of uh, Jesus going down and, and freeing Adam and Eve and the other souls of the just, uh, the Old Testament saints, so to speak. They, were in a, they, they couldn't enter heaven until Jesus came to die and rise for our sin, die for our sins and rise again. Once that happened, though, the gates of heaven were opened. Jesus proclaimed the gospel to them, so to speak, and they were able to enter heaven. The point is, there, is a thir- there are third places besides heaven and hell that are referred to in Scripture. So when we talk about purgatory as a third place besides heaven and hell, we're not sort of going against something that, that the Bible already teaches. That's one thing I want to point out. Excuse me. But turning to purgatory more explicitly, really, the doctrine of purgatory is very basic. The Bible tells us that, and we know from, from what we believe, all Christians believe this, that when we die, to enter heaven, we need to be in the state of grace, or the state of sanctifying grace. When we die, we need to be in the state of grace. If we're not in the state of grace, we cannot enter heaven. We're, we're, we, we die, if we die in the state of mortal sin, we will go to hell. What about those, however, who die in the state of grace, but still have venial sins, or who still have sinful desires. They've died in the state of grace, but they still have sinful desires. Can they enter heaven as such? They cannot. Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 21, verse 27, tells us that nothing unclean or impure can enter heaven. Nothing unclean or impure can enter heaven. So what happens, say, I die on the way home tonight. Uh, as far as I know, I'm in the state of grace. Uh, but I still have, I, I'm sad to say, some sinful desires on my soul. The Bible tells us that nothing impure shall enter heaven, unclean shall enter heaven, and yet I die in the state of grace. What happens? Okay, I, 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 we're, we're told that if you die in the state of grace, you can go to heaven, and yet we're also told nothing impure can, go, can enter into heaven. So therefore, there has to be some purification process by which we who die with venial sins or sinful desires can enter into heaven. Does that make sense? Yes? Thank you. Okay. So, so the souls, those of us who die, when we die, if we have any venial sins or sinful desires left on our soul, they, we must be purified so we can enter into heaven. Unless we are, why is that? Why is it that nothing impure can enter heaven? Because unless we are perfectly holy, we will not be able to bear the presence of God. Heaven is, among other things, heaven is seeing God as he truly is in all his glory. Uh, He doesn't hold anything back. We see him in all his glory and in all his power. If we were able to enter heaven uh, with any impure desires, we wouldn't be able to take it. It's like it, it, the one analogy that's used, it, it's like looking at the sun. 
only those who are sufficiently prepared, so to speak, can look at the sun. What that means in, in the context of looking at God uh, when we die is being free from all sinful desires. If we have any sinful desires, we won't be, God's presence in all his glory will be painful to us. So we need to be purified of our sins and sinful desires so that we can enter into his presence and see him as he is. What this means is that purgatory is a gift. It's not a punishment. I think that sometimes when we have been taught the doctrine of purgatory, sometimes it's seen as, you know, it's kind of like hell, just not forever. It's shorter for a certain period of time. That's, that's not the case. Uh, the souls that are in purgatory know that they will see Jesus and see God as he is in all his power, in all his magnificence. And they need to be cleansed so they can see him as he is. It's a gift. It's not a punishment. We, we should rejoice in the truth of the doctrine of purgatory. It's definitely nothing to be afraid of. I'm glad there's a purgatory because if there weren't, then I, I, I'm fairly confident that I, I think I'm pretty sure that I, I can say that when I die, I'm going to have some sinful desires. And if there weren't a purgatory, that means I'd have to go to hell. And I don't want to. So, uh, so I thank God for, the, for his gift of purgatory. I, I rejoice in the fact that there is a place where I can be cleansed of those, those venial sins and sinful desires. That's all that purgatory is. And it, again, it's important to remember that it's a temporary place. You don't go to purgatory forever. I, I, I'm actually surprised at how many Catholics think that purgatory is a possible eternal destination. It's not. If you get to purgatory, you know, high-five the person next to you because you're going to heaven. I mean, it's, 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 it's a good place to be. I mean, you, you will be in heaven at some point. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with going to purgatory. Um, it's in no way a permanent place, uh, even though I think some Catholics and, and, and I'm sure some Protestants think that's what we believe about it, and it's not. All right. So where is the implicit evidence in Scripture for the doctrine of purgatory? Why do we believe it? I sort of just explained rough, uh, in a very basic way uh, the, what purgatory is and why we believe in it, but what's the, the biblical evidence for it? And there are, there are a few implicit references, as I said at the beginning. First of all, in the New Testament, we do find references to a cleansing fire, uh, a fire that will, will cleanse those who enter into it. Uh, St. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians, and St. Peter, again, mentions it in his first letter. And if you're looking for the exact references, I can give them to you at the end. How, how many of you have ever heard of the Bible? Uh, I know we're Catholic, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good book. You read it sometime. Uh, and, and almost as importantly, I mean, how many of you know what this is? Showing you the back cover. Okay. This is the Catechism. It's also a good book. A little... Harder read, but a good book nonetheless. And I, by the way, the, cat, the catechism's presentation on purgatory, like every other doctrine we believe, is very, very good. I mean, if you, have a, if you want to know something about the faith and you can't ask somebody about it sometime, uh, and if you have one of these in your back pocket, uh, <laughs> read, look to it. It'll definitely give you uh, a, a good basic presentation of what the Catholic Church believes about everything it believes. So, references in the Bible to cleansing fire. Um, what I just mentioned, Revelation 21, 27, nothing impure shall enter heaven. And I mentioned venial sin. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of venial sin? 
I have to ask these questions. Okay, good. Um, I'm not going to ask how many of you haven't. Venial sin and mortal sin, uh, it's parallel or whatever, the, the other kind of sin. Venial sin, as you know, are sins that do not take us out of the state of sanctifying grace. They harm a relationship with God, but they don't cut it off. A mortal sin, hopefully temporarily, cuts off our relationship with God. And for mortal sins, we need to go to confession uh, to have them forgiven. Venial sins are sins, and we can't deny that. We can't forget the seriousness of them as sins, but they don't cut off our life with God, and, and we don't need... I really shouldn't tell you this, but you maybe know it already... You don't need to confess venial sins. It's, it's good to do, but you don't need to do that for them to be forgiven. Um, in fact, when you receive communion, your venial sins are forgiven. Uh, the, the Holy Eucharist is one of the, the best ways to have sins forgiven. Venial sins, not mortal sins, because every time you receive communion, your venial sins are forgiven. If you're in the, in the state of grace when you receive communion. Just uh, FYI. So, mortal venial sin. Is there any evidence for that in Scripture? Anybody know? Yes? I'm not asking if you know. Is there any evidence? No. Actually, there is. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. St. John says explicitly that there are sins which are deadly and there are sins which are not deadly. Not deadly sins are venial sins. Venial and not deadly are synonyms in this, in this context. So, when we speak about uh, venial sins and mortal sins. This is one of the doctrines where we as Catholics can say, you know, it's in this here somewhere. I can't tell you exactly where, but it's in here. First uh, John five sixteen and seventeen. So there are sins which aren't deadly. Again, if you, we die with them on our soul, Revelation twenty one says we need to be pure to enter heaven. You know, it's it's just a sort of a very basic syllogistic argument. There has to be a way by which those venial sins are cleansed from our soul. Uh, before we can enter heaven, after we die. All right. Another, another uh, implicit reference in the Bible, Matthew 21, sorry, Matthew 12, 31. Jesus speaks about how there are some sins which cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come, which means that there must be some sins which can be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Now, what is the age to come? After we die. So there are some sins which can be forgiven after we die. And I want to read a quote from Pope St. Gregory the Great, who lived at the end of the 6th century, commenting on this verse, Matthew 12, 31. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth, Jesus, says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. So there are some sins which can be forgiven after we die, and those are venial sins. All right. We're also told in the Old Testament, uh, we're given instances where the, the Jews prayed for the dead. Um, now, you might be wondering, how is prayer for the dead proof of purgatory. Well, if somebody's in heaven, they don't need our prayers. They already made it home. They don't need our prayers. If they're in hell, unfortunately, our prayers won't do them any good because they chose to be separated from God forever 
and therefore praying for them is, is, is fruitless because they will always be in hell. That means, therefore, that there must be some other state or some other place where praying for somebody is, is worthwhile, where, where it bears fruit. There must be souls who have died who can use our prayers. And that's indirect evidence for purgatory. The, the Old Testament reference is the second book of Maccabees, 1246. Uh, a little problem when you're talking to your Protestant brothers and sisters. They don't have that book in their Bible. Uh, they should, but they don't. So that's not always the best. That, that, that's, that reference isn't going to get very far with them. With this exception... It does show, even though the book of, they don't believe the book of Maccabees is inspired, they acknowledge that it reflects historical truths. So that means that before Jesus came, a couple centuries before Jesus came, the Jews were praying for the dead. So even though they don't recognize 2 Maccabees as inspired, it still reflects the historical fact that the Jewish people were praying for the dead. Uh, so it's still, there's still some, validity, or some usefulness in pointing out that reference uh, to our Protestant brothers, brothers and sisters when they ask us about the doctrine of purgatory. Now, over time, as the church reflected on these implicit references, it, it came to realize that there, there's, there's a basic presupposition behind the church teaching on purgatory, which we already talked about. It came to this awareness that both venial sins and what we call sinful inclinations that come from sin have to be cleansed from the soul before somebody can enter heaven. Okay? Both venial sins and sinful inclinations, sinful desires, have to be cleansed from our soul before we can enter heaven. We already talked about the difference between a mortal and a venial sin. What I want to do next is talk about what sinful inclinations are. Uh, has anybody ever heard that term, a sinful inclination? A couple people. Okay, it's not quite as, quite as common. A sinful inclination is a, is a desire to sin. And we all have, unfortunately, desires to sin. Uh, they're a result of the fall. They're a result of original sin. Um, the technical term for, a sinful, for sinful inclinations is concupiscence. And for only $3, you can read more about concupiscence in my dissertation, which I have available for sale. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you went, right, never mind. Uh, <laughs> In Scripture and in the early church, the, the Scripture and the early church referred to these sinful inclinations, these sinful desires, as punishments which are due to sin. Okay, so you have a sinful act. Say I, say I, I, I commit a sinful act. I, I, I yell at somebody out of anger. I've committed a sin. Uh, mortal or venial, it doesn't matter. I've committed a sin. From that, I... What happens when it's sort of like the image maybe that comes that is the best image to to give you a sense of what we're talking about here is a snowball that you start at the top of a hill and roll down. It's kind of like what a sin is when you get it when you sin you get the snowball rolling and it gathers more speed and picks up more snow and becomes bigger and bigger. When we sin and when we continue to sin, we're just feeding the desire to sin in our soul. Okay, we 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 just add to those sinful desires in our heart. Okay? Those sinful desires, again, flow from every sinful act. Every time we push the snowball down the hill, we're adding to our sinful inclinations. Those sinful inclinations also need to be removed uh, before we can enter into heaven. And, and we can understand uh, 
why there are these sinful inclinations by looking at what exactly sin is. Okay? When we commit a sin, um, when we commit a mortal sin, I'll begin with mortal sin. When we commit a mortal sin, we lose communion with God and we are incapable of having eternal life with him. That's what's called the eternal punishment due to sin. So if I, if I kill somebody, I intentionally kill somebody uh, tonight, which I don't plan on doing, uh, the, the punish, there's an eternal punishment. I have lost communion with God. If I were to die later that night, I would go to hell because I cut myself off from, from life with God. Okay? What happens, though, if I go to confession before I, confession and then I die? I still have a sinful desire that arose when I, when I killed that person. Killing that person fed the sinful desires that I have, and that desire is still on my soul even after I go to confession. See, there's a, there's two, there are two consequences for every sin. The eternal punishment, and then what's called the temporal punishment. The eternal punishment means I lose communion with God, even if that's forgiven when I go to confession, the temporal punishment, the sinful effect, the inclination to sin remains. Okay? So there, there are two effects of every sin, uh, mortal or venial, uh, damaging our, our, our life with God, but also increasing sinful inclinations and sinful desires. So we need to have both of those uh, cleansed, not just the sin itself when we confess it, but also the sinful inclination needs to be cleansed uh, before we can enter into heaven. There is a scriptural parallel for this idea of the double consequence of sin, eternal and temporal punishment. In the second book of Samuel, uh, that's in the Old Testament, uh, the second book of Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, we, we read about King David and how he lusted after and committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to another man. Bathsheba became pregnant uh, by David, and as a result of that, David tries to cover up his sin. He calls her, uh, Bathsheba's husband's name is Uriah. Uriah was in battle for King David. David brings him back and tries to get him to go home and hopefully sleep with his wife so that it looks like Bathsheba's baby is her husband's and not the king's. Now, this doesn't happen because Uriah is faithful to his king and he's trying to protect him from those who might attack him, so he never goes home. So it's, so it's impossible for uh, somebody to say that Bathsheba is pregnant by her husband, so she must be pregnant by somebody else, and David knew that it would get back to him. So what does David do? He sends Uriah back to battle, and he has him killed. God confronts him through one of his prophets, and David realizes his sin, and he, he repents of his sin. But the punishment, so, so the eternal effect of the sin was forgiven. He repented and God accepted his repentance and, and he was restored to, God, in, to God's good graces. He was restored to a, with a, his relationship with God was restored. However, there was still a temporal effect of the sin that had to be taken, uh, taken into account. Um, and, and as a result, the, the, the baby died because of the temporal effect of the sin. So, so even though David was restored into a right relationship with God, uh, the, child still, the child still died as a result of the sin. The same thing happens whenever we commit a sin. We're in a re good relationship with God, but, but I have a desire to sin that I have fed when I've committed a sin. And that needs to be cleansed 
from my heart before I can enter into heaven. Okay? But I know that's a lot. If you have questions, after, feel free to ask questions at the end. But, but that was the church's development and by which it came to understand that there must be a place called purgatory, a place in which even those sinful desires can be cleansed. Now, where else do we see evidence for purgatory? In the very early church, the second century, there's evidence of purgatory in the writings of the very early Christians, apart from the New Testament. Uh, the early church fathers, as they're called, spoke about purgatory explicitly, and they also spoke about praying for those who have died. Again, if, if you look at what the, what, what the church has always believed in the Bible and the writings of the earliest Christian writers after Scripture, you find reference to purgatory. The first time that purgatory was denied uh, in, in a large way by a large number of Christians, uh, any, any idea what century that was or what person? Martin Luther in the 16th century. Until Luther, all Christians believed in purgatory. Uh, it was Catholics, it was just Catholics until the 11th century, and then the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics split. But even the Eastern Orthodox believe in purgatory. They don't call it purgatory, but they believe in the reality of purgatory just as we do. That there's a place in which we are cleansed of our sins and sinful desires before we die. Okay? And the church has formally taught this for centuries, that there is a place called purgatory um, in which punishment due to forgiven sins must be carried out. And the church has always taught that we can pray for those who are in purgatory. And that's another thing, unfortunately, that because we don't hear about purgatory, we don't know to pray for the people who are in purgatory. Uh, but it's definitely, I mean, I, pray for the people who are in purgatory. They'll thank you later. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a gift, as I said. It's a place we want to be, but you want to get out of there as fast as you can. Um, it's... Purgatory, in some sense, is painful because we're being cleansed of our sinful desires. Uh, the deepest conversion occurs in purgatory. Um, so it's sort of like, uh, well, I don't know, taking a, a Brillo pad to your skin, maybe. I mean, you know it's got, you got to stay and you got to get it off, but it's going to hurt in the process. But you know it's worth it. I mean, you want to get to heaven, and you'll put up with this, and you know that you're going to get to heaven. It's just a matter of time. And boy, if uh, the people who are still alive can pray for me, it'll go all the faster. Okay, so make sure that uh, when you pray, remember the souls in purgatory. It's especially remember those uh, of our beloved who have passed away. Um, and that's another thing. You know, I think, unfortunately, because purgatory isn't taught about as much as it used to be, and we... As it should be clear, we still believe in purgatory. I think some people thought that we did away with it at Vatican II, uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, we still believe in it, um, and, and we still should pray for the souls who are in purgatory. But because we don't hear about it much, you know, when, we, when you go to a Catholic funeral, sometimes it's as if we, the, the person is, should be canonized on the spot because they must have gone straight to heaven. Uh, hopefully that's the case, but what if it's not? What if they're in purgatory? Let's pray for them. Pray them out of purgatory. So don't forget, again, to pray for the souls of those who are deceased so they can get out of purgatory all the faster. The other thing uh, I wanted to mention here, we talk about purgatory as a place, but it's not a place in the strict sense. Why? Well, because only souls are in purgatory and souls don't occupy space, and therefore purgatory isn't a place. 
I just made that up, but it's a, you know, good little ditty. Souls don't occupy a space, so purgatory isn't a place. Or not. Uh, so there is no place called, you can't go find purgatory. Um, it's a state, rather. Really, it's a state of existence when we die. And we often hear about how long you're in purgatory. And, and sometimes you read references to people, boy, who is, somebody is in purgatory, you know, there's a saint who had a vision, and they saw somebody who was in purgatory for decades or centuries even. <clears throat> That's just metaphorical imagery to talk about purgatory because purgatory may, the church doesn't talk about purgatory as being, you being in purgatory for a period of time. We, we don't know, in fact, that purgatory, uh, that you're in purgatory for, for any time. It could be instantaneous just a matter of intensity, how hard the Brillo pad gets scrubbed on your soul. We, we don't know. I mean, that's speculation. The church simply teaches that there is a place called purgatory and you're cleansed from your sins. It doesn't say that, it's a, that you're there for a specific period of time or that it's instantaneous. That's, that's where theologians try to speculate and come to a deeper understanding so, so we can see what we do know about it. But right now, that's all the church teaches. There, it exists... It's a good thing. Pray for those who are in it. We don't know if it's a matter of time or instantaneous cleansing that happens, though. Okay? And the other thing I want to mention, especially as we're asked about purgatory by Protestant brothers and sisters, it is a work of grace. You know, we don't do anything in purgatory. If, if we're when we are on earth, right now I am able to actively cleanse myself of my sinful desires through prayer through works of penance, through frequent reception of the sacraments, I can cleanse myself of my sinful desires and grow in holiness. When you're in purgatory, your opportunity to do something to grow in holiness is done. It's happening to you in purgatory. Now, so when I'm here, I can try to wash my soul as much as possible. When I'm in purgatory, it's being done to me, and I can't do anything to increase its intensity or its duration, just to use that language of time, I can't make it go any faster. It's going to take as long as it takes once I'm in purgatory. Why do I say that? Because it's, it's, it's the, the grace of God that cleanses us in purgatory. It's not us doing anything. You know, one of the, the, uh, the other misunderstandings I think uh, Protestants have about what we believe as Catholics is that we can work our way into heaven, and we don't believe that at all. We are saved by grace. Uh, now, we are to act out our faith through works of love, and those works of love increase our holiness um, and bring us closer to God, but we are saved ultimately by Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and especially when somebody asks us uh, about our Catholic faith, we need to make that clear. And that's true about purgatory as well. Uh, in purgatory, it's not us doing anything. It's great, Christ's grace cleansing us of our sinful desires. The blood that he shed for us is cleansing, being poured over our souls, so to speak, cleansing us from our sins so that we can enter heaven and see him as he truly is. So it's, it's, it's all grace, as St. Therese of Lisieux said, uh, and that applies to purgatory as well. It's God's love uh, working on us to make us ready to see him as he really and truly is. Okay? Thanks for your attention, and what we're going to do now is uh, Rick is in the back with a microphone, and if you have any questions, just wait for Rick to raise your hand and wait for Rick to get you. Now, that's not for the audio system. That's for the, the, uh, the camera.
So uh, make sure you still speak up loudly so that everybody else can hear you. And I'll try to repeat it if, if, nobody, if somebody doesn't hear. But any questions? Two up here, Rick. Um, you were speaking about David and Bathsheba's baby died because of David's sin. Yep. So I'm taking from that that you're saying that God punishes us for our sins. Yeah. Uh, did you hear that in the back? Okay. I gave the scriptural parallel about David and Bathsheba and how their, the baby died uh, as a result of the sin. And so the question, good question is, so is God, does God punish us for our sins? I, I, when I was preparing this, um, I, I knew I'd get that question. It, it's, a, it's a parallel. It's an analogy. It's not the example, th that example comes close to giving us a sense of the reality of the dual consequence of sin, the double consequence, the eternal and the temporal. But it does break down for exactly that reason. Uh, when we're talking about sins and the sinful desires that flow from them, it's not punishment. It's just the natural consequence of the sin. In the example of David and Bathsheba and their baby, that is more of God's punishment to the sin, which is not the case when we're talking about purgatory and us being cleansed from sinful desires. The, the, the point there was trying to show the difference between being restored to good graces with God but still a punishment being carried out. That breaks down when you talk about purgatory because it's not a punishment that God's imposing from outside. It's the inner nature of the sin working itself out. Does that make sense? Okay. Question, Rick, up here. There's another one right here. Hold on just a second. You didn't mention plenary indulgences. Now, does that have anything to do with the church as after Vatican II okay. or what? Yeah, very good question. The question was plenary indulgences. How many of you have never heard of indulgences? Oh, Wow. Well, good. We still believe in indulgences. We didn't do away with indulgences. What's an indulgence? Uh, even though you've heard of it, you may not know what it is. An indulgence is uh, another gift from God through the church. Um, when, we, when we pray certain prayers or make a pilgrimage or visit a church, they're specified. There's a, there's a book that tells us what, what indulgences, how indulgences can be gained. But when we do acts of love and mercy... Um, God will more freely pour out his forgiveness upon us or on somebody, on somebody who has died and cleanse us or that person of their sinful desires. Um, we still believe that. Now, you can't buy an indulgence. Uh, the Reformation got started by and large because priests were s selling indulgences, which you can't do, but they were trying to do it. Luther rightly raised a big stink about it, and we were off from there. Um, the church still believes in indulgences, and, and there are two kinds, partial and plenary, and if somebody wants to know about, more about them, we can talk about them after the public Q&A, but we still believe in them, and they're, they're things that can be applied to us and the souls in purgatory. Mm -hmm. um, you had said something about not knowing any time limit as far as purgatory, but I've heard, and I don't know if I was wrong hearing this, that with a scapular that will be saved the following Tuesday from purgatory, if we wear a scapular, is that correct? Yeah. The question is, uh, I mentioned how pur we don't know if there's any time in purgatory or not. There may be, there may not be. Um, the devotion of the scapular, uh, somebody who faithfully wears the scapular according to the, the conditions and requirements of wearing a scapular, um, 
it says that you'll be freed from purgatory the Tuesday after you die. That's the best way. I mean, you have to. You, I talked about purgatory as a place because we need to use that kind of language. We have to talk, uh, use language of time when we're talking about purgatory. So, I, I think that that's how the churches, or when that, with that devotion of the scapular, it's the language that we use to describe how, uh, if you wear it faithfully according to the preconditions, and when you die, it, it's going to come quickly. Or is 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 the way I think what's being communicated. Any other questions? You talked about purgatory being like a Brillo pad. Yeah. Um, so does that mean there is no fire or is it oh. not known? Um, there was a, a big, huge book written by a saint that evidently had some visions of purgatory that were pretty horrible. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> So I talked about purgatory being like a, a, a Brillo pad. Uh, is there no fire? Um, there is no literal fire. Again, literal fire occupies space. Souls don't occupy space. Therefore, purgatory isn't a... Thank you. Uh, there is no... It, spiritual fire is the imagery that's used to, to uh, communicate the fact that there is cleansing. Fire, fire cleanses impurifications. Like if you, uh, St. Paul, when he's talking about the cleansing fire, talks about a golden vessel. When you put gold in fire, the impurities are cleansed away. So when you take a soul that's in the state of grace, uh, but still has some impurities left on it, when, when God pours his grace upon it, that grace is like cleansing fire, which remo removes those impurities from uh, the soul. Saints' visions that have seen purgatory in a pretty awful place. Sometimes th there are definitely uh, books with collections of, of visions that saints and other holy people have had of purgatory. And sometimes it's really, purgatory sounds like, like I said early on, hell, just not forever. It, I think there, maybe at times there has been a purpose to using that kind of language, but again, it, if you get to purgatory, you want to be there because that means you are going to get to heaven. And, and the pain of purgatory is nothing like the pain of hell. The primary pain of hell is the fact that you know that you, will never, that you have separated yourself from God forever. You were made for God. We find our fulfillment and our perfection, our ultimate happiness in God. And yet, I have by my sins, if I've separated myself from him forever that knowing that I have lost the presence of God for all time by my own fault uh, is the primary pain of hell. The souls in purgatory do not have that pain because they know they will see God and, and find their perfection in him when their purification is complete. And that's another thing, just briefly on, on hell, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send, anybody who's in hell is there by their own accord. Somebody who's in hell has sent themselves to hell. I think that's another thing that we have to remember about hell. When God sits in judgment and, and condemns somebody to hell, he's basically ratifying or recognizing the decision that that, 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 that damned soul has already made. Okay? God is not a vindictive judge who, you know, you will know when you die where you're going to go. There's not going to be a guessing game. There's not going to be a quiz. You'll know what your eternal destination will be. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, Earlier you had talked about you don't have to work to get to heaven because yeah. it's by grace that you get to heaven. 
But doesn't that kind of contradict the teachings of the Catholic Church? Because in order to grow in faith, it takes a lot of work because you have to, you know, go against the temptations that Satan is putting before you and also working to live out your faithful life. And to me, that's hard work. So what do you mean and by I didn't not mean, work? If, uh, yeah, it, I, I didn't mean to say you don't have to work to get to heaven. I, I, I should have been clear on that. What I meant was, apart from God's grace, we can't do anything to heaven. Yeah, the, the, growing in holiness, I mean, Christ talks about how we have to bear our cross. And the, the path to holiness is, is a difficult one. Um, it involves prayer, mortification, the, the things that you mentioned. So definitely we, it, we, we, we have to cooperate with God, and that work of cooperate, well, it's, it's work to cooperate with him. What I was trying to stress is the fact that we don't believe that apart from grace you can get to heaven. But thank you. That's a good question, and I need to clarify that. Okay. Any other questions? Would it be all right if I asked a couple questions? Absolutely. Okay. Let's say I knew a guy who had sex out of wedlock and he got pregnant, and then he died in a tragic accident yep. without ever going to confession. Yep. What, what happened to him? Okay. Everybody hearing that? You hear that in the back? Okay. Uh, we don't know. Because for mortal sin, there are three confessions. First of all, it has to be grave matter. So it has to be serious that they did. So... Uh, premarital sex, extramarital sex is an example. Secondly, the person has to do it f willingly. And I'm going to presume that in this case, he did. And thirdly, uh, he has to know completely what he's doing. Now, it sounds like, well, he, he did. But what the church says is that there's no way that we can judge those, whether the person had all, well, the two things. We can tell whether or not they committed grave matter. So it's definitely gravely sinful. But the other two things, we, there's no way for us to, to know because that's something that they only know within their own heart. Now, we can um, make a, a guess. We can you know, guess that this person probably knew that what they were doing was wrong and, and did it with complete freedom, but we don't know that. Because we don't know that, we, we don't know what their eternal destination is. And therefore, it's good to pray for them and hope that they, it wasn't a mortal sin. It was great, grave matter, no doubt. But hopefully, maybe they didn't know what they, somehow they didn't know what they were doing. Somehow it wasn't a mortal sin. They committed a very serious sin, and, and, and hopefully uh, they didn't die. They died in a state of grace. But we don't know that. And that's the danger. We don't know that. I mean, that, that's why we should never commit uh, grave sins, because we're endangering uh, our souls. Does that, that answer the question? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I assume you believe that God created the entire universe, right? Yep. And everything is in the image of God. How can there be a place then where God is not present, like, say, hell? Well, that's, a very, that's a very good question. How can there be a place where God isn't present, like hell? God's, God's uh, absence from hell is similar to it's not a complete absence. Uh, it's an absence in his, seeing him in all his glory. Okay? In other words, uh, right, now, right now we don't see God in all his glory. So he's absent from us in that way. Now he's still present to us insofar as we are existing. If God forget, for, could forget us about, uh, uh, if he could forget about us right now, we would cease to exist. He is present and sustaining us in existence. Um, 
but he's not present to us in all his glory. And that's what the doctrine of hell is. God isn't present to the souls there in all their glory. The only reason the souls in purgatory still exist is because God keeps them in existence, sustains them in existence. Uh, did I say purgatory or hell? Okay, and hell. I mean, hell as well. Uh, and that's another thing, by the way. End of time, everybody, every human being, their soul and their body will be reunited regardless of their eternal destination. So even if somebody is damned, they will have, be there in soul and in body. And they, are, they will continue to exist because God keeps them in existence. Um, but he's not there in all his glory. And, now the church doesn't formally teach this, uh, but a number of people, um, saints and theologians, have argued this, and I think they're right. The fact that God isn't present to them in all his glory is itself an act of mercy, even for the souls of the damned, even for those who are damned. Because as bad as the pain of the absence of God in his glory is, his presence to them in all his glory would be even that much more unbearable. So even though hell is, is, is a horrible place to be, it's possible. Some, again, the church doesn't explicitly spell this out, but a number of people have argued that it's the case. Hell is still an act of God's mercy because it could be even worse if he was present to them, those, those people in all his glory. We don't know that, but it, knowing that God is merciful and yet just, that, that's, a, to, to me, a good way to make sense of that. Any other questions? Rick? When a person lies in the hospital in a coma, is that a process of going to purgatory? Uh, is a person who is lying in hospital in is that a process of going through purgatory? Uh, it, it's hard to say because we don't know the, the state of consciousness of somebody in a coma. Uh, or, well, we know the state of consciousness, but is there some way by which they can make the suffering which they're enduring somehow redemptive and therefore a process of purification? If it is, then it is. It's, it's purgatory on earth, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but we don't know that. Just to, because in order for us to purify ourselves on earth, we need to be aware and, and, and choose to undergo that purification. And we just don't know about somebody who is in, in, in a coma, if they're able to cooperate and, and carry out that work or not. It's possible, though. We could hope that that's the case, but we don't know. Any other questions? Um, I guess I'm kind of confused because, like, and maybe I misunderstood you, but it, it sounded like you were saying that if you don't confess your mortal sin, then you will go to hell. Okay. But, like, Protestants don't have confession. Right. Yeah. That's okay. Is that your question? Yeah. Okay. So, I said... Uh, if you don't confess your mortal sins, you're going to go to hell. But what about those people who don't have confession? Okay. It's possible for somebody who is in a, a, a state of mortal sin, it's if, they are, if before they die, they, are, they have what's called perfect contrition. If, if they are truly and completely sorry for their sins, then a mortal sin can be, that mortal sin can be forgiven. So those who don't have access to the, the sacrament of confession 
aren't out of luck. They, they, God's grace is still available to them, um, and that's true for us as well as Catholics. If we die outside of the state of mortal, or if we die having committed our mortal sin, haven't yet confessed it, if we're able to make an act of perfect contrition before we die, that can happen. And that can only take an instant. Now, this is, to give an example, this is another, uh, uh, saints' visions can't be taken as church teaching, but they can sometimes illustrate church teaching. Sometimes they don't work as well. I think that sometimes the uh, images of purgatory are less than helpful. Other ones, though, can be helpful. Uh, anybody heard of St. John Vianney? Great. Uh, a great priest lived in France in the 18th century. He, would, he, was, w- he was well known uh, as, as a confessor, somebody who, was a gr- who could read your soul, actually. You go to confession with him, he knew the state of your soul, he was, and therefore he was able to give uh, that much better spiritual direction to you. He would sit in the confessional for 20 hours a day because people would flock to his village to go to confession with him. Um, 20 hours a day. There was a woman whose man, uh, whose, whose husband, uh, well, her man had commit, uh, committed suicide by jumping off a cliff. And this woman was, was very despondent because suicide is, is grave sin and therefore can be a mortal sin with the other two conditions. So she was really up, upset about this and, and was worried that he uh, was in hell because he died by suicide. So she went to St. John Vianney. He was very much worried about that. And, and he had a vision. And in that vision, uh, he, well, first of all, he said that because of you and your prayers, uh, he is not in hell. What happened is he leapt off the cliff. And in the, before he died, before he hit the ground and died from the impact, he was, God offered him the opportunity to make an act of perfect contrition. He did, and therefore he died in a state of grace. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that we should bank on that. Um, we shouldn't count on that. We should, if, first of all, we should avoid mortal sin completely. But if uh, we happen to commit a mortal sin, we should get to confession as soon as possible. But there are other avenues which are available. Um, but again, you, you, you sh- we shouldn't count on them. We should... We should rather, flee. confession is another great gift, and, and we'll probably have another theology on, tap, on that at some point. Uh, the sacrament of reconciliation is an awesome gift. One of my professors uh, in theology talked about how uh, confession is like candy grace. You can get all you want. You can go to confession as much as you want. You can go daily if you want to. Uh, you, hopefully we're all going at least every couple months. Uh, monthly confession is definitely a good practice, but you can go more often because that's just free grace. I mean, and, and we want all the grace we can get. Okay. To answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? And if you have one, want to come up afterwards and ask me, uh, you're welcome to it. Um, I'll be here for, I'll stick around for a few minutes afterwards. Uh, I have a two and a half year old and nine month old twins at home, so I'll have to be leaving in a little bit to get home and help. Uh, but, but I'll be able to stick around for a little bit. So you can pray for us. Nick, uh, <laughs> do, do you have a question? Oh, wait, wait just a second for Rick. That, yeah, I'm going through purgatory right now. That, yeah. My wife in particular, for that matter. But Isn't it actually to count on, to be counting on that opportunity to have that moment of 
perfect contrition is, is a sin in itself, a presumption, is right. a potential yeah. sin. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. going back to not banking on having the opportunity to make an per- act of perfect contrition can be guilt, you can be committing the sin of presumption. Uh, you, we can't, God is always ready to give us his grace, but it's sinful for me to commit a sin knowing that I can receive forgiveness afterwards. And uh, excusing myself. I'm going to commit this sin because it's okay because God will forgive me. That's a sin in and of itself. Now, I, I, we know that God is merciful, but to intentionally and purposely commit a sin knowing that we can be forgiven of it later, that's another sin. So when you do get confession, you've got two sins to confess now. What you did and then the, the presumption you made on God's mercy and grace. We, we, know, we know God is ready to forgive us, but we can't presume upon his love and mercy. We can't take advantage of him. Well, we can, but it's committing another sin. And that's what, yeah, we, that's why I said don't bank on having that last opportunity because you could commit, be committing another sin right there. And then you've got to have perfect condition for that, and on and on. All right, any other questions? Okay, thanks for coming. There's still food in the back, and, and you'll be free to uh, hang around. And there's more food and socialize. Uh, they don't close down for another hour, hour and a half. So thanks for coming.